Back in the 70s, board games and improv theater had a baby, and it was called the role-playing game. These games allowed a generation of kids to live out their dreams of slaying dragons and saving kingdoms, all while sitting in their bedrooms and basements. Today, gaming has moved into the cultural mainstream, and role-playing games are back with a vengeance. Join us now as five of these former kids come out of the basement and onto the internet to experience adventure, mystery, and obscure pop culture references. It's time for Roll for Combat. Hey everyone, welcome to Roll for Combat. I'm your GM and host, Stephen Glicker, and in this week's special episode, I am sitting down and talking with Ron Lundeen, who just released a brand new adventure, The Dead Roads, which is the first adventure in the new adventure path, Tyrant's Grasp. This is an important adventure path for a lot of reasons. First of all, it's the very last adventure path for Pathfinder version 1. Other thing is, is that this is a crazy adventure path where they're just going nuts and they're doing all this crazy stuff where the Whispering Tyrant is going to try to get out, Galeron is going to be blown up to smithereens, and most importantly, this is going to shape what Galeron is going to become for Pathfinder 2nd Edition. And this is really important. Even if you don't care about the adventure path or you never play adventure paths, you're going to have a lot to listen to if you like the world of Pathfinder because this sets up what is going to happen when Pathfinder 2nd Edition drops this August and what to expect in the world of Galeron because it is going to go through multiple changes. There's going to be big ramifications for what happens to the world and this adventure path sets it up. So to keep that in mind, I have separated out this interview into two sections. The first 22 minutes is no spoilers whatsoever. So if you plan on running this adventure path or being in it, the first 22 minutes is for you. Then the next 19 minutes and 45 seconds exactly, it's spoilers galore. We talk all about this adventure path. We talk about everything that happens in it, what's going to be happening in the future, and so forth. If you're going to play, I strongly recommend you don't listen to those sections because we talk about exactly what happens in this adventure path and what happens in the future. And then after that, anyone can listen. Then it's no more spoilers. We just talk about what it's like to work at Paizo, and we talk about the adventure paths and what's going to be coming up in the near future, how they're going to transition to second edition. So there you go. So the first third, no spoilers. The next third, spoilers galore. And the last third, no spoilers whatsoever. And we talk a lot about 2E. Also, if you're new to the show, welcome, and do listen to some of our other podcasts where we do play through the Dead Sun's Adventure Path, and you can jump right into episode 70. You don't have to jump right in the beginning. It's a long podcast. I get it, but we break it up into multiple sections. If you want to jump in, come to episode 70. I give a full recap of what's happened since then. That starts book four of Dead Sun's, and you'll find out about our contest to win a free trip to PaizoCon. That's right. Just listen to the podcast, listen to episode 70 up to now, and you can enter a free trip to PaizoCon. You'll get a free trip, free airfare, free hotel, free badge, free banquet ticket. Last year, we sent three people. Who knows how many people we're going to send this year, but you got to listen, and you got to join the Discord, the Roll for Combat Discord, where we play tons of games. If you like to play Pathfinder or Starfinder, Come on down, just go to discord.rollforcombat.com and you can join our game anytime. We're always playing games. We've got 50 plus games going on right now. 
anyhow, let's get into my interview with Ron. Hey everyone, Steve here. I got another special guest. We are going to be talking with Ron Lundin, developer at Paizo, who just wrote the brand new The Dead Roads, which is the first adventure in the Tyrant's Grasp adventure path, which I've been very excited for because I played Carrying Crown, where you had to like prevent Tar Buffon from escaping. And now, well, from what I know, he's going to escape and just cause havoc all around Galarian. Ron, how you doing? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. So is it Tarbafon or Tarbafon? I've actually heard it pronounced a couple of different ways. I, I myself call him Tarbafon, but in the for the purposes of a lot of the adventure path, I want to focus on his tyrant, title of the Whispering Tyrant. So I a lot of times when an author would turn over something to say Tarbafon, I'd say, well, unless you're talking about who he was as a mortal thousands of years ago, I mean, let's give him the more badass title of the Whispering Tyrant in the text. Cool. So I figured since we're talking about an adventure path and this is a very cool adventure path with a very cool, iconic story that I believe is going to help set up the storyline for Pathfinder V2. Now, let's just talk about it in generalities in the beginning, and then we'll get into spoilers for people who might not want to actually or might not have the time to play it or are in the middle of an adventure path they're already doing, and they just want to know the lore, they just want to know what's going on, and they can sort of, you know, just read them almost as novels, uh, which a lot of people do. I do that all the time. I like to read all the adventure paths, even though I only get to play, well, I get to play about a third of them, which is unfair, but, uh, you know, most people don't. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that one of the one of the things that we we spotted um, when we were looking at the kind of plotting everything out, looking at the map of uh, Last Wall, uh, the big nation of paladins that's keeping an eye out for the Whispering Tyrant's return, is that way on the other side of it, far from the Gallowspire, the Whispering Tyrant's prison, is this dinky little town of Rosslar's Coffer, and that's where we decided to sort of start the action. And and this is not a spoiler. But one of my favorite sayings is you wake up dead. But for the first time ever, you literally wake up dead in the beginning of this adventure, which seems to be a common theme with you because you also did the uh, Cthulhu-based uh, adventure path, I believe, as well. I, I did, the Strange Aeons. I was one of the uh, the later adventures there with a lot of activity in the, the Dreamlands. But yeah, that one is the same. But start out where you're, you have no memory and you're in an awful prison and go. Here it's you, 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 you wake up, you're in darkness, there's stone all around you. And the first roll that you're going to make, first check you're going to make is the strength check to push aside the lid of the sarcophagus you're in. So as I said before, you, yeah, it's great. You wake up dead. And that is a great way to start this adventure path. But of course, before we could get into spoilers, why don't we talk about who the heck is Tarbafon and the Whispering Tyrant, and why is he such an important part of the culture that he's now been the focus of two uh, adventure paths? Uh, that's right. He was he was a little more tangential in Carrion Crown. He has well. Let me give you his background and then how it ties into sort of both of these from a high level. The the mortal Tarbafon was one of the most powerful necromancers, perhaps the most powerful necromancer that the world had ever seen. So powerful that he was challenging gods. He he made a trap 
for Aridin. He wanted to trap uh, uh, the power of a god in order to fuel his own uh, divinity. That's the thing he's been hungering for. He's an evil, evil man. And he set up thousands of years ago a trap for a god. It failed. He con- he clashed with Aridin. Aridin beat him, killed him. But what Aridin, you know, may or may not have realized is that even his death at a god's hands was part of Tarbafon's big plan. It was what he needed to ascend as a into a into a lich. It took him a lot longer than expected. It took him several thousand years. But when he came back with all the powers of his necromancy and as a lich, he was a, a terror to behold, you know, the, the a force unseen on the world. He took over the land of Ustalav, put the orcs of the, uh, the nation of Belkson under his heel and just started laying waste to Avistan, the, the continent at the time. The, the best that the civilized nations could do was gather together in this, uh, what they call the shining crusade, to try to stop him. They fought him to a standstill, and at a particularly uh, Im- Im- significant battle, a man named General Arnesant, who was working for the Shining Crusade, fought the Whispering Tyrant on the field of battle. The Whispering Tyrant, being no fool, not having time for this mortal hero, uh, simply uh, cast Wish. He wished to have Arnesant's heart in his hand just to kill him off that, that quickly. Arnesant had a shield that had been forged by Aridin long ago, an artifact that protected him. What happened was this shield, now known as the Shattered Shield of Arnesant, uh, fractured into a bunch of pieces to save the general. A piece of this holy shield came into uh, the Whispering Tyrant's hand instead of his heart, lodged in his hand. So you've got this undead, powerful necromancer who's got this this shard of holy energy jabbed into his hand. He can't get it out. Best thing he can do is retreat to his fortress called Gallowspire. And the Shining Crusade, they they go to take off after him, but they've been fighting for so long and so hard that they just can't finish the job. They know that they can't defeat the Whispering Tyrant, even though he's on the run. So they decide to put up a magical seal on Gallowspire and trap him there. Um, and he has been trapped for, I think, 900 years since the Shining Crusade. That's where he's been captured. Of course, he's got a lot of agents that are still active in the world. Perhaps the most, if not not the most powerful, but perhaps the most far-reaching is a cult of death worshippers called the Whispering Way, who's sort of enacting his will and trying to get him free. That's a, That's the history of the Whispering Tyrant. He is on the cover of the Inner Sea World Guide because he's one of the greatest threats the inner sea has ever seen, even though he's been locked away for 900 years. He's a, uh, he's a big deal. So again, he's very much alive. He's just trapped. And what's his, what's his actual goal? He's, he's still seeking divinity. He craves a sort of control over everything that he's got. He's seen what he considers to be sort of other upstarts like, uh, Iomide, who was a mortal general during the, uh, shining crusade, become gods. That's power he thinks he deserves, and he's going to fight to get it. So if he becomes a god, then what? Does he start then killing the other gods and just take over? Or I think we can agree that it would be bad news regardless. That would be a fun series of uh, fun, a fun development of our campaign for him to achieve the power of a god, but it's up to heroes to stop him from doing that. 
So in Carrying Crown, I know you fight the Whispering Way a lot, and I ran it from beginning to end. And they're sort of the main bad guy throughout the adventure because the Whispering Tyrant is trying to come up with a way to get out. And spoiler warning, he doesn't get out uh, because the heroes saved the day. But in Tyrant's Grasp, I can't I imagine you're not going to be repeating the uh, the storyline for two adventure paths. So I have a feeling he might get out this time. Is uh, or am I? Is that too much of a spoiler? But it sounds like he might actually sort of get out, or kind of get out, or what happens? Maybe. Well, the the big difference, without going into spoiler territory, is in Carrion's Crown. He was working through a proxy, a high ranking member of the uh, Whispering. High ranking members of the Whispering Way were trying to uh, develop the Carrion Crown in order to get him out. Um, he's decided to take matters into his own hands in this adventure path, and it's it is perhaps not ironic that his method of doing so revolves around that very shard of the shield that's been stuck in his hand for. 900 years so let's talk about the adventure itself now we've talked about the background so i always find that the first adventure and especially low level adventures a combination of the first adventure and adventure path and a low level adventures are really tricky because there's not a lot of good monsters it's very easy obviously to kill out off adventurers at level one or level two and there's also so many times you can face giant centipedes or giant rats or giant frogs like you really want to mix it up or goblins or something so what's it like and how do you set up writing the low level adventure to make sure that it doesn't kill them right away and that it sets up the whole adventure path and you know you have to do a lot in this very first adventure path i imagine this one and perhaps the last one might be the two hardest ones to write well, I think that's uh, I, I, one of the things that I was very careful about in this one. One of the things that can really kill a lot of low-level PCs dead are monster resistances or invulnerabilities. Swarms can be a big problem for low-level PCs. So can creatures that have damage reduction. So I was really careful in this one to... to Further, if if later on there's a creature that can has damage reduction for everything except silver weapons, I've intentionally put a silver weapon in earlier in the adventure. Later on, adventures, you know, we you're on your own to pick up cold iron or holy or or adamantine or what have you. But for the first adventure, you've got to make sure the PCs are set to fight the challenges you're putting in front of them. And I've seen it a lot in these low level adventures where like level one and level two are sometimes very social almost to give them a way to gain level without having to do heavy fighting. But you don't really do that in this adventure. It looks like you have them kind of fight their way out immediately. Like there, there's a lot of possibility for death right away. Yeah. There's a, uh, yeah, it's, it's the amount of interaction that they have is this adventure is really sort of framing for the last maybe 80% of the adventure. The first part from the get go it's we're we're in this strange situation. We have to figure out what's going on. And yeah, we're going to have to fight our way free. So another thing I wanted to ask, because this is the last one. Here we go. The last adventure path. And you have cases where, oh, if you're this type of class or you have this type of ability, then keep this in mind. So at this point, at the end of Pathfinder version one, there's like hundreds of classes, thousands of abilities how on earth do you keep track of every single thing? Because there's a lot of funkiness in this adventure that I could see specific classes or spells or abilities can almost break the adventure in some ways. Well, this that's actually 
something that's turned out to be a lot more interesting than than I'd thought. It's been neat to see some of the interaction on the Paizo forums on the the GM side. They're saying, well, hey, you know, if somebody wants to play X race, that's going to be really difficult in this adventure. And then other people jumping in saying, well, you could modify it this way or maybe do that. It was neat for me to see that the fans don't jump to the oh, well, then just don't let them play that race. They say, how can we change the story, keep the themes, keep the difficulty, but allow people to play whatever racing class they want? I think that the inventiveness of GMs in our community is something that it's impossible to underestimate. I mean, they're, 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 everybody is very invested, very interested in making this work, even with, as you say, the hundreds and hundreds of options. So you do your best when you write it, and then you're hoping that the community and the GMs which they will, especially for Paizo people, will jump in and help if people are trying to do something odd, if they're trying to play uh, an odd class or race combination that the GM knows might break the adventure. And if they need help, kind of like figuring out a way to fix it or make it run a little more, little smoother. Yeah, and that's part of the adventure design as well, where you're like, all right, well, let's say that the PCs are built and they can steamroll right across, you know, villain A, well, there's also villain B and C in the adventure who might not be so easy or might adjust their tactics based on what they know the PCs can and can't do. So there's some there's some flexibility kind of built in. And each of the adventures individually, I think, works to build that sort of flexibility in. So another thing I wanted to talk about quick was that because this is the last adventure path in, in Pathfinder version one, I had dinner with Eric Mona a few weeks ago, and he did mention that this is going to kind of set up the world for Pathfinder V2 is that it is going to continue, that it's not like you're going to reset the world in Pathfinder, that this is rather earth-shattering and the consequences of this adventure will affect the world going forward. Hence why I'm thinking a lot of people are going to probably read this adventure, even if they don't play it, because they want to know the setup for Pathfinder version 2. If there's, Is there anything you're allowed to say about that at all? Well, as far as on the non-spoilery side, I think that a lot of people are going to be able to put together that the player's guide for this adventure path deals with the history that the players may have had with a little town called Rosslar's Coffer. They're also probably hearing something about how the adventure starts you out dead. And if they're looking only at titles, they see that the second adventure in the adventure path is called Eulogy for Rosslar's Coffer. I think Rosslar's Coffer ceasing to exist is going to be a, a surprise to nobody. But that's a, that's a very small part of the changes that we're making here to prep for second edition. One of the things going into this adventure path that, that we realized, putting it together, is that the inner sea world guide that we've created that sort of sets forth our whole world is, is 10 years old. And as we advance each year in the real world, advancing a year in our world, what may have happened in that decade since, this is our opportunity to touch on those things that have changed. And, and let me give you a good example of this. In the Inner Sea World Guide, there's a mention that outside of Rosslar's Coffer is a temple that has been taken over by a, a monster called the, a Red Reaver. Uh, powerful monster. The citizens just don't just usually don't go to the temple anymore because there's this, this territorial monster that lives in there. But that was 10 years ago. 
shouldn't somebody have done something about that monster in the course of 10 years? And what we did is we worked with the organized play team and there's a Pathfinder society adventure where the pathfinders are sent into this temple saying, we need you to go into this temple to do this thing. But, you know, by the way, fair warning, there's a big monster there. So I'm able to start the dead roads and even the player's guide to say in past history, yeah, there was this big monster that was there. Nobody wanted to go there. But hey, just recently, the Pathfinders took care of it. So now it's gone. That's that's one of the ways we're sort of building in the changes on what has happened in that 10 years since we established our world to prepare us to establish it again in the new edition. So you almost need to come up with an errata for the inner sea guide and say, by the way, in the last 10 years, here's what you missed. That's actually not a bad idea. I'm coming up with that right now. I'm sure someone will do that on the Paizo forum. And it's been done. I mean, obviously, as you said, through society play and these adventure paths, like the world has been being, the world has modified. It might be nice to have a little recap before Pathfinder version two comes out so people know this is what the world's going to be. Or are you planning to do that on uh, book six? Say, okay, everything's been blown up. Here's where we're, here's where the world's at right now. The the book six is going to lay the groundwork for what the world is going to look like in Pathfinder 2nd Edition. And one of the ways that it's doing that is so if somebody who comes in brand new to 2nd Edition, and we think there will be a fair number of those people, they'll look at our world and our world will make sense. Those people who've played Pathfinder 1st Edition and know the adventure paths and things that have happened will look at the exact same words on the page and they'll be able to connect it with the long history of world-shaking events that we've had. So the Pathfinder 2nd Edition, being able to talk about the events of past adventure paths that we're considering sort of a now a, a, a final or canonical sort of world result with those is something they'll be able to say, yeah, we, we had a part in that. We did that. So this is really an important adventure path. This is like literally the connective tissue between the first edition and second edition. And this will shape the world in many, many ways. I, I think that's right, although it's shaping it only in the lens of its own action. That is to say, you're not going to hear a lot about what happens in the in the uh, continent of Gerund or in Cheliax or Andoran. They're not they're not the focus of the action here. And so, what's happened there is based on what has otherwise happened with things like Hell's Rebels and Hell's Vengeance and those adventure paths and things like that. Not this one. This one is focusing on the Lake and Carthen region. Um, the whispering tyrant is somebody who's in Ustalov threatening last wall. That's the, that's the focus here. And the changes in second edition that deal with that are all the ones connected to, are all the ones that come up here. We, we don't, for example, in the sixth, sixth issue of this have a, here's how the world has changed sort of back matter article or something like that. It's just, it's what naturally comes out of these focused events. In fact, I do want to say, just because it's it's been a great opportunity for us, instead of the usual continuing the campaign and extra monsters and extra articles that are in the, the sixth and final adventure for Tyrant's Grasp, what we did is we sort of circulated among the developers here at Paizo saying, hey, if this is your absolute last chance to get some interesting rules variant or deity description or archetype or something that you wanted to put in the game, you got two pages, what are you going to do? And so we've got, I think, that last, the back of that last one, 
which normally the Back Matter of Adventure is 28 pages long. This one is what we call the developer showcase. It's 14 different developers jumping in to say, here's my last thing. Here, oh, here's my last thing. They don't connect a lot necessarily to each other, even necessarily very deeply to the Tyrant's Grasp adventure path. But it's the opportunity for us developers to sort of say, oh, 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 one more thing. That's, that's, that's what that uh, last issue is going to be. Wow, that sounds awesome. So before we get into the spoiler territory, because it is very hard to talk about this adventure and what's going to happen without getting into spoilers. Is there anything you want to mention before we get into full spoiler mode? Um, yes. And this is something that's sort of foregrounded in the um, the player's guide. Uh, it's in the GM description of the uh, of the whole campaign, which a GM should read in order to sort of set the groundwork for the players. But it bears mentioning in a uh, non, especially before we start talking about the spoilers, this isn't the type of adventure path where the heroes are expected to win everything, and everything is absolutely you know the glorious victories, you know left, right, and center. This is predominantly a survival horror adventure path, and I mean that to, for two two reasons. One, in the course of the adventure path, bad things are going to happen that you can't stop. Being a hero is about, in this case, not stopping them, but in helping other people weather their loss to be, have an impact on the tragedy that might otherwise occur. The second point of survival horror that is very difficult to pull off is that it often means a lack of resources. And so in this particular adventure path, you have to be prepared for the fact that you're not going to be able to run to a market or a temple after every encounter, after every area. There are entire adventures, frankly, where you're, you're on your own and you've got to be on your own and make do with what you have and what you find. And that's important for uh, a lot of characters. If you're somebody who is counting on that particular, you know, being able to go to the store and buy a masterwork uh, gnomish ripsaw glaive after first level and then buying a plus one holy gnomish ripsaw glaive from the market as soon as you get the money. This isn't the adventure path for that. That's part of the survival horror is limited resources. So with that, let's get into full spoiler mode because this is a fun adventure path that we can talk about all the nitty gritty and everything you wrote, all the fun stuff. And for those who don't want to know this, it's a podcast. You can fast forward through this. I'll probably have something at the end, but for those of you who just want to know the story and you know you'll never get a chance to play this, at the bare minimum, I would say buy this and read it because there, this one is filled with a lot of lore, a lot of information. It's a good read. And as we've been discussing, it will affect the world for Pathfinder version 2. So you definitely want to be caught up on how the world is going to change. With that, let's get into full spoiler mode. So with full spoiler mode... My favorite part is they wake up dead in the boneyard. So they're actually in the afterlife, but yet alive, which is awesome. That's great. So, which I want to ask is, so if you're in the boneyard, which is where you go after you die and you're alive, what happens when they die while in the boneyard? Uh, that's going to be what, what happens when you die is that your soul goes to its to its appropriate and eternal reward. You join the river of souls. You go to the right place uh, when you die. The boneyard isn't 
the right place for everybody. In fact, it's the right place for only people that are true neutral. And it's it's more of a processing center for people who are, it's not clear where they ought to go. But if you are a paladin of Iomade and you die, even in the boneyard, for asthma, the boneyard, they don't have any control over your soul. It's going to go to heaven. That's, that's where your soul belongs. And so you're just going to be dead. So that doesn't stop in the boneyard. Okay. That was one of the things I was wondering about as a GM. I was like, cool, they're dead, but they're alive. And just to back up a minute, they literally go to sleep. They die. Everyone dies in uh, Rochelar's coffer, and they all wake up in the boneyard. It just happens that the PCs, for whatever reason, are still alive, which you'll find out about later, and that they have to figure out why are they alive? Why are they in the boneyard and how the heck do they get out and go back to the real world? That's that's exactly right. This, the thing that's special about the PCs, and I'd mentioned the, uh, before we got the spoiler warning, I'd mentioned the shattered shield of Arnasant and how a fragment of it is still in the Whispering Tyrant's hand. Um, the Whispering Tyrant has developed a devastating super weapon with that and little tiny, tiny slivers of the same shield um, have embedded themselves in the PC's hearts. It's their it's their obols. It's called the word, um, which uh, Crystal Fraser found, and I love an obol. O b o l is the is the coins you put on the eyes of dead people so they can pay their toll to the ferryman, or it's some sort of it's a symbol of passing on to death. The PCs have these obols lodged in their hearts, and that's what makes them special. For the purpose of the boneyard and the psychopomps that are the bureaucrats administering souls in the boneyard, it makes them a big problem. They're alive. They're not supposed to be here. Somehow they got here and the psychopomps don't have any idea why. Maybe it's got something to do with these pieces in their heart, but they're not, but they're not supposed to be here. And the, the PCs end up between a couple of psychopomps that want to tell them, hey, here's how you leave and get out. You're not supposed to be here. We want to get you gone. Um, and another psychopomp, depicted on the very cover of the uh, adventure who's like no this is this is an error that must be corrected by killing the pcs and even though she's not villainous she's not evil in that sense of term she's 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 a bureaucrat who wants to handle things in a way that puts her in direct opposition to the pcs so one of the interesting things i find about this is there's no evil villain at the end in my adventure it's it's a it's a neutral creature who has very different opinions than the PCs about what ought to be done with them. Yeah, one thing I've read a lot of your adventures, and you usually have very colorful characters in your adventures, which I like, because then those are always fun to play with as a GM. And personally, I think as a player, those are what you remember. Like fights are one thing, but fun, goofy, kind of silly in a way, or dead serious NPCs are a lot of fun and i love that after the pcs escape the tomb they're in that they bump into the bureaucrats was it umble and thoot and they're like in trouble <laughs> was it they're like almost on probation and then they find out that these pcs are bumbling around the boneyard and they're almost helping out the pcs because they don't want to get fired or something I, I like the whole concept of these poor bureaucrats trying to keep their jobs that that's exactly right, and the PCs could lose them their job. So how about we sweep the whole thing under the rug, get the PCs back to the world where they think they belong, and that way we don't get in any more trouble. And then, of course, you have the adventure where they have to go to three locations, and each one of them are totally different 
and they even play differently. You have, was it the Palace of Teeth? You want to talk about the Palace of Teeth? As my dad is a periodontist, I thought that one was awesome. <laughs> that's yeah that's the uh so i wanted to make sure that even with the overall hey this is kind of a horror adventure that i had three different the, the three middle parts which the pcs can tackle in any order are three very different types of sort of like mini horror stories and the palace of teeth sort of a body horror type of thing where you've got tooth fairies running around many of whom are perfectly happy to bargain with the pcs about oh will you give us some of your teeth and we'll let you do this or we'll tell you what you need to do and so on and that's that's i can imagine an awful lot of pcs going wait you want my you want my what no 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 wait no and other pcs going well you know it would get us past this uh Anyway, so that's a, the Palace of Teeth is, uh, is I think, very flavorful. Some, some people that have read it are like, I don't know that Faye belong in here. And uh, my answer is, of all the Faye, which ones belong most in the Boneyard? Well, the ones that collect teeth. And then you have the Nine Eves. And what I like about this is that it has a different feel to it. And that you have puzzles in this one, I believe, which I always find fun. And you even mentioned here if that, oh, if you don't like doing puzzles, you could have the NPCs help them out. But I know a lot of my PCs, they really enjoy it. It's one of the few times where they get to use their own brain rather than the PC brain. But that does add an interesting dilemma. Like, if you have a really dumb PC, how will they solve these puzzles? Like, yes, you as the player might, but it's no way the PC would ever solve the puzzle. But you kind of mentioned that. But I do like that you have a different play style in here, that it's not all just fighting. Yeah, I think as as far as the puzzles go, the the thing that I'd 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 encourage everybody to keep in mind is that the the point the reason that everybody's getting together to play is to have fun. And if you've got a player who has fun solving puzzles but happens to be playing a intelligent six barbarian, that doesn't mean that the intelligent six barbarian can't have kind of a flash of insight or remember something. There's there's no reason not to have that person, that player jump in and help solve the puzzles. If you've uh, done sort of escape room things or the the game versions of those, uh, you know, Exit and, and things like that, I played a lot of those, really love them. And I like playing them even with people who sort of don't love puzzles or don't consider themselves very good at it because those are the people that will get us out of a jam when all of us puzzle-loving people are like, we have no idea how to solve this particular one. It's the people who aren't very good at puzzles and we're like, well, why don't we try this? We're like, oh, oh, that's actually right. So I can see that person being the intelligence eight barbarian saying, oh, why don't we try it this way? And it was like, oh, suddenly that works. And what is the story there? I will say you have two of my favorite low level monsters in here. I was happy to see the artwork for the Sturges because I have lost many a first level PC to Sturges. They are horrible. And you have Boilborns. I love Boilborns. You got some really nasty stuff in here. Yeah, they 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 are super gross, um, and <laughs> which is part of the reason that I wanted to have gross sort of you know outsiders that that deal with vermins having infested this uh, gothic manor with a puzzle loving guy in it. Part of the reason I'm picking things like Sturges and Boilborn is I thought it was important and an interesting challenge from a design perspective that throughout this whole adventure called the Dead Roads, which takes place in the land of the dead, there is not one single undead opponent. Not one undead creature in this adventure. And then finally, we have, how do you pronounce her name? I want to make sure I get it. Oh, Saligar, Saligara, Saligara's Scriptorium. Saligara's Scriptorium. I love this one. So 
I've noticed that you have dream sequences in a lot of your adventures. And sure enough, once again, you seem to have dreams here, although it's nightmares in this case, nightmare influence. What does it do with these dream sequences? <laughs> this this goes to my love of sort of the Cthulhu mythos and the dream quest of unknown Kadath and things like that. I actually even pulled in uh, Berthold, one of the characters here is a rattling, uh, which comes out of uh, Lovecraft, you know, dreams of the witch house and things like that. So I've tried to make this sort of uh, as as sort of this is my Lovecrafty part of the adventure, the nightmare driven space bending sort of madness creating part of it. This was, this was actually one of the things that I really, really like to do is to develop first. Here's how an exceptionally boring scriptorium might look and be laid out. Okay. Now here's how you'd overlay a whole bunch of nightmare over top of it. And I have to admit, I went through and I flipped through a lot of Pathfinder in my day and I've seen a lot of strange pictures but on page 44, there is a peach with mouth and fangs. What the heck is that? That that credit goes to Crystal Frazier. She's the one that did the uh, d- decided on the art for this. Um, decided some of the other uh, uh, some of the other changes, good ones. Um, as an example, when we're right here, I think I turned over Salagara as being a, a male psychopomp, and I think she kind of went through and was like, yeah, they're not not enough women in both uh, helpful and adversarial roles, and so Salagara is a woman. But when but when she went through, I was actually delighted to see that. The the peach with fangs and a gropey tongue is uh, is actually super gross, and I'm really glad she decided to illustrate that. And then once they get through all of this, they actually, I guess, convince these three people to let them go. They have to go to this death bowler. De- bower. A, a bower is a garden, and so it's death bower. Got it. Death bower. And... I don't know. Is it too on the nose that you made it look like a skull or is that like an homage to uh, Tomb of Horrors? Uh, it's not It's not an homage to Tomb of Horrors so much as it is realizing that the the main villain who's trying to stop the PCs herself looks like a skull with a flowered with like a flowery halo. And so why wouldn't she make her own garden look like a uh, skull with a flowery halo on it so it's really more self-aggrandizing on her part than a uh, homage to tomb of horrors although i like that that the the most striking difference being that tomb of horrors is all about stone and bone and death and this is all vibrant flowers and pretty colors and nice little lakes and such i saw that and i was like up oh, i can already see it if i'm playing this and the pcs start in this garden and then they start seeing the outline they'll be like you know it's coming they'll be like oh look at that oh it's a skull i see a skull it's it, you know that that's going to be happening so after they conclude the adventure and they get back it sounds like i've gone through the rest of it and let's just talk about the rest of it i know you didn't didn't write all of it but i know you helped structure it that they come back and then the whispering tyrant eventually breaks out and i love his final goal here is he wants to to blast out the Starstone Cathedral and get the Starstone and make himself a god? Is that basically he just wants to blow everything up and then get to the Starstone? Yeah, that that is absolutely his ultimate goal. He knows that the most direct way to become a deity that he knows people have been using is to pass the test of the Starstone in the Starstone Cathedral, and he is not going to let that uh, yeah, that's the path he's chosen. He's not going to let anything get in his way. So if over the course of the adventure path, you think, what does the Whispering Tyrant do? 
He's careful about arranging everything so that he can get free, gets free, heads to Absalom. I mean, that's that. I mean, he's he's sort of headed directly there. There are some hiccups along the way that the PCs can turn into dramatic hiccups, but their their final confrontation with him is um, in the Cairnlands outside of Absalom, where they're trying to stop him from getting into the city, cracking open the Starstone Cathedral, and becoming a god. So, in only one other adventure path that I can think of off the top of my head, where you actually literally fought a god, and that was Age of Worms, when you fought Kaisis, who was so high level, he didn't even have level, and it was literally fighting a god, and you would have to kill him. How do you fight and kill... I guess he's not a god yet. I guess he's just going to be a very, very high-level creature. Yeah, I think he's like a CR-26 or something. He is, you know, For all intents and purposes, he's a god with the abilities that he has to do. The, uh, the PCs realize that the, the end of this adventure isn't going to come from killing him. I mean, he's a lich. He's just going to regenerate in 1d10 days if they do kill him, right? So that's at best a very temporary setback for him. The biggest, most clear and present danger that he presents is he's got basically a whole bunch of loose nukes that he can use anywhere he wants in the world. That's what the PCs have to deny him. That becomes the ultimate goal is to deny him the super weapon that he's used just before the very first page even of the Dead Roads. You spend the entire uh, adventure path learning about that, how you stop that, and then bringing it to a uh, bring it to a close. You're not you're not killing a madman who can't be killed. You're denying a madman his super weapon. And he actually uses a super weapon a few more times. He starts nuking the planet from orbit, from what I can tell. Yeah, keep, keep an eye on this. I will say that if you, I mean, if you just open the inside cover of the the Dead Roads Adventure, very first inner cover page there, it gives a little bit of a spoiler for the second edition in that the, the map is titled The Gravelands. Last Wall, uh, which is what Last Wall is destined to become. Um, and you can see in there that there is a little symbol of an explosion over Rosslar's coffer. And there is a little symbol of a gagged skull over Gallowspire. As we go through the adventure path, each of these maps has a gagged skull to indicate where the whispering tyrant or the whispering way's attention is focused and an explosion for places that they have destroyed. And we will get more and more of both of those on the inside covers as the adventures go on. That's funny because I did look at that and I was trying to, I'm like the Gravelands. I don't remember the Gravelands anywhere. And I was trying to figure that out. I'm like, why is it called the Gravelands? So I'm actually very happy you explained that. Yep. That's the, uh, the things, things do not go well for the nation of last wall in this adventure path. And so the, the region that is uh, last wall today and also including sort of the Isle of Terror. I mean, that becomes known as the Gravelands in the future. And it's no, it's no surprise that in an adventure path where the Whispering Tyrant gets his way for even a short time, he's able to make some pretty dramatic changes to the, 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 the face of the world. I have to mention this just because I know people will kill me if I don't. You do mention they go to Arcadia, and I know people have been like dying to go there. You got to tell me what's going on there. What's 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 going on with Arcadia? The uh, well, this is actually it's it's fantastic. I love the fact that this adventure path gives us the opportunity to go to Arcadia. Um, and in the 
the way the PCs get there seems almost initially an accident, and the PCs soon realize it's just no accident at all. The PCs are caught, potentially caught again in one of the the uh, um, blasts of the super weapon, and a, an NPC saves them sort of at the last minute by seeming to just teleport them away. Just get away heroes you know i like you enough i don't want you to die just go away and the pcs are like well now we're in a jungle and there's these huge crocodiles and wait a minute there's a sort of you know uh you know mesoamerican city that's very sort of highly technologically and magically advanced so what where on earth are we um but they soon realize that it's actually no mistake that they've been sent there some of the secrets of the uh of the weapon that the whispering tyrant is using and some of the secrets of the shards that are lodged in their own heart, uh, started, uh, back in Arcadia thousands of years ago. And they're able to put those, find out about those and then, uh, put those to use. Is this the first time Arcadia has ever been written about? I can't remember ever seeing it before. It's only been mentioned. I don't think we've done Arcadia in an adventure path, but being an entire continent, Arcadia is huge. We've talked about the re- a region called Sagata, which in uh, distant shores, and there have been some mention of um, either people from or items from or tr- trade from Arcadia sort of scattered throughout some of our other products. In, in this particular adventure path, one of the key ad- uh, Arcadia and in particular, the nation in Arcadia called Zopotl plays a key role in that it's where uh, Arasni, one of the key NPCs throughout this adventure path, is from. That's where she lived as a mortal thousands of years ago. I have a feeling people are going to get there and just want to stay there because that place sounds really cool. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to think that in that, which is the fifth of the sixth uh, adventures, that it's the sort of place where once people go there, realize there's some trouble that they need to solve. Once they've solved it, I, I really sort of hope that what it engenders in the players, you know, in their characters, a sense of, you know, gosh, we actually really like it here and kind of want to stay. And there's plenty more adventure to be had. And this Arcadia is a great part of the world, but... Yeah, you know, nobody's going to stop the Whispering Tyrant if not us. So we now we got to go back, right? I, I want it to be sort of an appealing place in the long term that the PCs sort of have no choice but to leave, but they leave it knowing, hey, there's plenty of other adventure to be had here. It's like going to Hawaii or going on vacation. You're like, oh, man, I just got here. I don't want to leave. I'm having a great time. Yeah, I think that's exactly so what do you do about the back matter for these last six issues? Like what, what are the goals for the back matter? Obviously introducing monsters. I mean, I guess you can introduce monsters and talk about some of the lore, which will obviously carry on into Pathfinder V2. But what is sort of the goals of the last couple of back matters for the last six adventure paths for V1? Well, we, we try very hard to make sure that the back matter supports the needs of the adventure. And often that is mechanical. One of the things for the Return of the Rune Lords adventure path, for example, there's a back matter article that's all about occult rituals that the Rune Lords have developed or that people have developed to use against or on behalf of the Rune Lords. That's That whole article is very, very rules dense in that rituals are very rules dense. In this one, we've taken something of a uh, lighter hand in order to build the lore. We want to talk about uh, Arasni as a deity. We want to talk about uh, what the nation of Zopotl in Arcadia is like. And those lore items will 
Perdor throughout the change to second edition, where we do have some specific mechanical crunchy things. It's the sort of things that can be in direct support of the adventure path. For example, if we've got, you know, tools of the boneyard, here's, here's some rules uh, for items and, you know, some magic items and, you know, archetypes and such that you can use to show a connection to the cycle palms and the, uh, the boneyard to sort of deepen the, uh, the adventure, um, which is not to say that those people who are going to be sticking with first edition couldn't continue to use those. They absolutely can. We know there's plenty of people who love first edition are going to stick with it. We're in favor of that. We love it. We're, I mean, we're proud of, we're proud of that. But for the second edition, it's a lot of the, the lore items, you know, what the, you know, what the whispering way is up to, what a, what a, uh, faction of the whispering way called the seal breakers, which is kind of a group of anti-paladins, sort of their secret histories and what the adventuring and the negative energy plane is like and things like that. Those are, those are a lot of, there's a lot of pieces of all of those that will actually continue to move forward even into second edition. If somebody wants to think, all right, well, I'm in second edition. I see a couple of lines in this book about what the negative energy plane is like. Where can I go to learn more? Well, there's this article, it's from first edition, but it talks sort of conceptually what it's like, and that's still valuable to me. So we're kind of running out of time, but I would want to ask you, obviously, for those of you who've been listening to these spoilers, you can tell that this is going to be a pretty epic story, and I would strongly advise getting the adventure path, even just to read it, so that you can follow this very cool story along. If there's any other spoilers you want to provide us that we should be on the lookout for in this adventure path or in the future for Pathfinder V2. Yeah, I think that there is, one of the things that I think is sort of fun uh, about the world is there are some really serious effects of good and evil. And uh, the Whispering Tyrant being one of the greatest evils that we have, even though the PCs might succeed at the end of this and taking his, denying him his super weapon and send him, you know, scurrying for cover yet again, the site where that occurs, even the site where that occurs is not going to be uh, left alone. There's going to be some big changes, not just in Last Wall, but on the uh, Isle of Cortos where Absalom is, just because the Whispering Tyrant is a sort of villain who just sort of you know, poisons everything he touches. And I think that's really interesting to see. He's like the Romans salting the wells. He's a sore loser. Okay, with that... Let's talk real quick, and then we'll go. What else have you been working on, Ron? Obviously, you had uh, two big adventure paths going on. Is there any future projects you're allowed to talk about, or is it all Pathfinder version 2 all the time right now? <laughs> well, for I mean, it sometimes I walk into the office, and it feels like for everybody but me, it's Pathfinder version 2 all the time and getting that ready. Because I'm shepherding this last adventure path forward, I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of by myself when I'm like, all right, well, I need to take this exceptional, you know, for, especially for the last adventure path, the last adventure in the last adventure path, which is the one I've got my sort of, uh, you know, teeth into now, though I've got my sleeves rolled up. I'm really working on that one. We, we have got John Compton wrote that one. It's, it's, it's brilliant. It's the dramatic conclusion that, uh, that we all wanted, but he has not been shy about how, well, let's really take the first edition rules for a spin and see what they can do. So we'll take this creature with this modification on it and apply this template and then you get a bunch of class levels. And so there's some very technical work that needs to be done. I'm, I'm fortunate that my fellow developer, Patrick Rennie, has been helping me out with some of the some of the technical specifics. But around the office, when I say, hmm, what you know, what happens when you apply, you know, 
this this oracle mystery to this kind of monster when it's got that kind of template, a lot of people are like, um, leave me alone. That's first edition. It doesn't matter anymore. We're talking about second edition. So I've I've got I've had to go it alone on a lot of these, which is itself both uh both fun and a little bit scary. Well, then you could just insert like Easter eggs and things in there that no one's aware of. And when it goes to print, they're like, what? What's that doing in here? We could put in some uh, little fun Easter eggs and little tricks and knickknacks that no one else will notice until it's way too late. Yeah, that's 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 actually something I have to avoid doing the best I can because I do know enough about the second edition to have done some writing for it uh, um, and to some support of it around here. But then I have to go back and realize I'm like, oh, wait a minute. There's these items aren't called trinkets in the first edition. And wait, what? No, I make a reference to a potent magic item. Potent means something in second edition, but it doesn't mean that here. Wait, wait, I have to sort of partition my knowledge in such a way. I think I'm. If I do throw in an Easter egg, it'll be almost certainly accidental rather than intentional. So is it kind of bittersweet working on the last adventure path for version one? Uh, no, no. I mean, there's. I mean, it's it's just sweet, sweet, right? It's not bittersweet. It's it's awesome <laughs> to be able to do. Um, I love adventures. I, I love telling stories. Um, in fact, the in the developer spread and the, uh, you know, where each, each developer gets a piece of the last issue. I wanted my two page spread to see how, how concisely can I tell a complete adventure in just two pages and one map? That's, that's all I get. So even, even when I'm left to my druthers to do anything in this world, I, I do storytelling, I do adventures. So this is actually a lot of fun to be able to do. So to you, as long as you get to tell a story and an adventure, it doesn't really matter whether it's Starfinder, whether it's Pathfinder, whether it's Society Play, as long as you manage to get the adventure out, the rule set is sort of secondary. That That is absolutely right. I've got, in fact, I finished up a big freelance project for 5th edition D&D, right? And the, the thing that was most fun about that project was the adventures part of it, right? That's the, the storytelling, the adventure telling, uh, you know, thinking about what players think will be cool to see and do and what will be cool for them to win out against, what will be cool for them to lose out against. I mean, that's all that's all fun parts of the storytelling. So what would you say your calling card is for your adventures? I mean, some people have very specific calling cards like Richard Pet. His adventures are always like just outside the box against the grain. Like whenever you read his, it's just bizarre. What would you say yours are? I, I mean, I've seen a lot of dreams in yours, but what would you think some of your calling cards are? I, I have sometimes far, I've been accused of having far too far, far too sympathetic villains, right? I want to really get into the mind of a villain and think, all right, what's this? Why is this person doing these bad things? And what it means at the table, some people have said, things kind of come to, you know, some squabbling or a halt around the table when people are like, yeah, this is a, this is a villain, but man, we, we kind of, we kind of get her position, right? We don't, you know, why, why? Why can't you just make villains are just straight up evil to be killed, Ron? Why do they all have to be not just interesting stories behind them, but compelling enough stories that we can put ourselves into their shoes? I think the Dead Roads is a fine example. McTana, the, the psychopomp at the end. I mean, she's a she's a bureaucrat who's trying to get a job done. I mean, who hasn't ever been in that position? Who can't at least empathize a little bit with that? So I think that if you look through um, the, the, a lot of the key villains, even some of the very minor villains and stuff I've done, you're like, well, I can, I can kind of see that person's position. And I maybe feel a little bit bad about having to bust them over the head with a great sword. Maybe that's why I like your adventure paths so much, your adventures, because I always do that to my PCs. I have them like 
when they had to go in Dead Sons and they had to they had to bust into a nightclub and I had the door person be like just this poor student and they were like killing her and I'm I'm letting them know it's like this is just some like intern you're you're just killing this poor woman who's just trying to make a little money aside and they don't, they don't want to have any part of it they're like no no don't don't tell me her back I don't want to know this backstory uh, we're the good guys we're not the bad guys and. I love things like that or No One Lives Forever, the video game where you actually hear the backstory of all the bad guys and you hear like their family problems and it's great. You're like, wow, I feel terrible now. Who is the bad guy? Who's the good guy? That's 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 awesome. Yeah, I think I think that's a lot of fun. I mean, it's all it deepens the storytelling as well. When you mentioned you I mean, you were I think you were right on when you said earlier that what people remember isn't the you know, the fact that they had a fight against these, you know, 10 skeletons, right? It's that they had a fight, they met this particular person, whether an NPC who was helping them or a villain who has a really compelling individual. If you like that, I would mention, and this is totally left field, check out Cobra Kai, because that is probably right up your alley, because that takes place, you know, the Karate Kid 30 years later, and it completely flips the script on who's good and who's bad. And then by the end, you don't know what's going on. It, it totally messes your perceptions of what good and bad means. It's it's actually quite genius. Well, if you're, I, 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 as long as we're going off on that tangent, my uh, eight-year-old son loves the Karate Kid movies. I think we've worn through a DVD of Karate Kids 1 and maybe 2 and 3 are on the way. Anyway, he just loves them all. But Cobra Kai, when I looked at it, I'm like, this is the kind of thing I think I'd have to preview myself to see whether or not it sort of narratively is something that's good for a kid. What What's your take? If you've seen I haven't seen it, but if you've seen it, what's your take? Oh, I saw it. And I sat down with my brothers in Hollywood. Um, he's actually a costume designer for major motion pictures. And he came over and we started to watch it. And to quote him exactly is said, that was the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life. And I absolutely loved it. And I'm telling everyone to watch it. It is brilliant character piece. The guys who wrote it were like a love letter to everything, not only 80s movies, but the old, okay, it's kind of like uh, Into the Woods, like part two of Into the Woods, where, okay, this is what happens at the end of the karate kid. But then what happens? Like, okay, yeah, he won, but now what? Like, what's the part two? And did that really solve anything? And what did their lives become? And it's it's amazing as a as a character study, especially for good versus evil and what consider what you consider quote the good guy or the bad guy. It's absolute genius. I definitely wouldn't have an eight-year-old watch it. It's way too advanced for that. And I, the production's not good. <laughs> it's definitely it's cheap. <laughs> my brother said he's like he's like oh the production of this is terrible. But the the scripts, the writing, the acting is absolutely unbelievable. Especially someone like you who wants to make sympathetic bad guys. This thing is nothing but sympathetic bad guys because it takes place from the point of view of Johnny Lawrence and how his life has been developing. It's fascinating. Yeah, I will have to check that out then. Thanks for the recommendation. Uh, yeah, I, I'm very curious after you watch it to see what you think. But I agree. I, I like stories that get into the the meat of bad guys, which is probably also like Breaking Bad, which is very similar. Like it shows the bad guy point of view and how everyone in their mind thinks they're the good guy in some way. No one thinks they're the bad guy. Absolutely true. 
So with that, I just want to thank you, Ron, for being on the show again. And for those of you who want to listen to the first interview, you could check that out where we talk about Ron's illustrious career as a lawyer, believe it or not. And then he gave it all up to write adventures for a living. Yeah, it was. Uh, and I, uh, you know, I said then that I uh, loved it and, you know, don't regret one minute of it. And I can still say that today. So the right life choice. Oh, I'm not criticizing it at all. I'm just impressed that that is that's like someone's dream. It's like being able to walk away from your career to do the, your dream career. And I, I applaud you for doing that. Yeah, I, I love it and happy to be on next time. Anything you want me to uh, chat about that I've done, I'd, uh, I'd love to come back. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks so much, Ron. Hey, everyone. Steve here. So thank you, Ron, for being on the show. And if you guys want to hear more interviews, well, you're in luck. We got a ton scheduled. We're going to be talking to everyone at Paizo from now until the release of Pathfinder 2nd Edition. And then some. We're probably going to be talking to them after the release as well. But if you guys want to keep up on the latest greatest with Pathfinder version 2 as well as Starfinder, just subscribe to the Roll for Combat podcast. You can listen to the great Dead Sons Adventure Path we're doing or just listen to the interviews. We got both here. And don't forget, if you want a free trip to PaizoCon, just listen to the show. Just go to episode 70 and start listening to the podcast. All you need to do is listen, you'll answer a few questions, and then you can enter for free. Anyone in the world can enter. Last year we sent three people. We had a great time. Got to play some Pathfinder. Got to play some Starfinder. This year you'll get to see Pathfinder 2nd Edition before everyone else. And there's going to be a few other secrets that I can't even talk about that I'm working on right now. But you don't want to miss it, I promise. So once again, just go to RollForCombat.com. Click on the links, subscribe to the show, go to the Discord channel, just discord.rollforcombat.com. Come join us there. Talk to other members of the Roll for Combat community, as well as play some Starfinder and Pathfinder Society games. Otherwise, I'll talk to you and see you soon. Thanks for listening.